Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and uh, chapter 2. And what we are going to see in John 2 is really the first impression that John gives us in G- uh, of Jesus in his Gospel. Now, first impressions are important, right? Maybe... Um, when you were a kid, your parents really impressed that upon you, and that's why you had to dress nice for the first day of school whenever you met your teacher for the first time. They wanted you to make a good impression. Or maybe when you got old enough to start applying for jobs, right? your parents kept telling you, you need to make a good first impression, you need to dress right for this interview, so you, know, you can impress these people. Uh, or maybe you kind of learned the hard way uh, as you got older how important first impressions are. Maybe you made a first impression that was not good, that you had to work really, really hard to overcome later. Or maybe somebody made a bad first impression on you and it was hard for you to kind of get past that as you got to know them better and realize that first impression didn't really reflect who they were very well. But either way, right, first impressions are of great importance. And again, here in John 2, we're going to get our first real impression of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus, of course, has been on the scene already in chapter 1. John has talked about him and pointed to him. Uh, Jesus has even spoke some as, as some of his disciples have begun to follow him. But Jesus has not yet really done anything. But in John 2, we're going to see Jesus at work. We're going to see the first miracle that Jesus performs, as John records it, as he goes to a wedding uh, at Cana in Galilee. All right, so let's look at John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, let's talk first about what happens in this miracle. And then we're going to come back and look at some of the details in the setting that I think are particularly significant. But first... What happens? Well, they're at a wedding, and Jesus' mother has been invited, and Jesus and his disciples have been invited, and Mary's mother, or Jesus' mother Mary, becomes aware that they've run out of wine at the feast, which of course is a significant problem. And so she comes to Jesus and tells him what the problem is. They don't have any more wine. 
And Jesus kind of pushes back a little bit and says, well, why are you bringing that to me? What, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We'll talk more about what that means later. But then Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right, so she knows he's going to respond to the problem. She knows that he's the one to go to when she has a problem. And Jesus, of course, is able to solve the problem in a way that nobody else can. Now, Mary's example and instruction here is one of the first things we need to pay attention to. All right? If you've ever wondered why in Roman Catholic theology people often uh, talk about praying to Mary... Right? And Mary interceding for them. So we ask Mary for things, and then Mary asks Jesus for things. And you wonder, where in the world did they get that? Well, this is where they get that. Because what Mary is doing here is she is interceding on behalf of this family with Jesus. Now, what Roman Catholic theology is assuming is that Mary continues to do the same kind of thing in heaven that she does here in this story. Now, we don't assume that. In fact, there's no evidence in the Bible that Mary continues that role of interceding with Jesus in heaven. But that's where it comes from. The reason we don't believe that is because the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus himself. We don't need Mary to intercede for us with Jesus because Jesus is the one who intercedes with us for the Father, or with the Father on our behalf. So we don't need Mary to intercede, but we do need to learn from Mary's example. Right? She is not our mediator, but she is our model. Because what does she do? When there's a problem, Mary goes to Jesus. Right? Mary goes to Jesus. She knows that he's the one who can solve this problem that nobody else can solve. And so she knows right where to go, and that's where she goes, and we should follow her example in that. If you got a problem that you can't fix, where do you go? You go to Jesus. There's another way that Mary is a, a helpful model for us in this story, and that's in, in what she does in verse 5. She tells the servants, you do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That's just always good advice. Right? That's good counsel. Mary knows that Jesus is trustworthy. Mary knows that if the servants will do whatever Jesus says, good things will happen. And that's what we believe too. We believe that Jesus' words are always trustworthy, always reliable, and that it's always good to do what Jesus says. So we should learn from how Mary handles this problem. Right? She goes to Jesus, and then she tells everybody involved to do whatever Jesus says. Right? We, likewise, when we have problems, we should go to Jesus, and we should do what Jesus says in the Bible, in the Scriptures. Right? So that's the first thing we want to notice here. We don't, and, and, and we want to remember, we don't want to put Mary in Jesus' place. Right? But we also don't want to neglect to learn from Mary. We don't want to, we don't want to be so afraid of you know, going too far with Mary that we just ignore her role in the story and the scripture. Oh, we, we don't want to do that either. We want to learn from her example. Now, what does Jesus do? 
Jesus gives instructions. There are these huge stone water jars that he tells uh, them to fill with water. And they do. The servants fill these jars with water. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And when the servants take some of that water to the, the head waiter, the master of the feast, then he says, wow, this is really good wine. This, people don't usually save wine this good for this late in the feast. Usually they serve the really good wine first, and then later they serve cheaper stuff, right, when nobody's as likely to notice. So we need to be clear Right, that Jesus did make real wine. It was good wine. Right, the head waiter, he's gonna, he knows. Right, he knows his business. He knows what good wine tastes like, and he recognizes good wine when it's brought to him. Right, and we also need to notice, and in, in, in this instance, this uh, my translation doesn't help us very much. I don't know about yours. Uh, how yours translate the, translates this. But in verse 10, when it says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Right? That, that phrase there, when people have drunk freely, that word there literally means when they've gotten drunk. All right? That's what it means. That word shows up five times in the New Testament, and every other time it shows up, my translation translates it, get drunk, every other time. Here, they kind of soften it up a little bit. My guess is the reason why they did that is because they're, they're, they're trying not to assume that everyone at the feast is going to get drunk, right? But that's what the word means. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes people try to talk like the alcohol in the Bible is not really alcohol. But it is, right? Jesus made real wine. Okay, and the head waiter says usually people don't serve wine this good uh, this late because everybody's already had so much they can't tell the difference, right? In Ephesians five eighteen, it's the same word when the Bible says, "Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." Okay, so he, so here's what we need to be clear about. Right? The Bible is clear: we should not be drunk with wine. Ephesians five says that. Other places in the Bible say we should not get drunk. The Bible also says that drinking wine requires wisdom. Okay, so for example, in uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Okay, so you have to handle alcohol wisely, right? You're not supposed to get drunk. The Bible commands us not to do that. But... There's nothing in the Bible that says it is a sin to drink alcohol. It's just not there. There's not a verse that says that anywhere. And if there was, then what would we do with the fact that Jesus made alcohol when it was gone? Right? Okay, so, so here's why this is important. And this is not the main point of this story. This, I'm trying to, trying to just get this part out of the way because I, I want to focus on some other things. But, but here's part of why this is important. We should not try to be more holy than Jesus. Okay, the people in the Bible 
who think they are more holy than Jesus tend to be self-righteous and hypocritical. Okay? We don't want that to be us. Okay? So if we start, if we make up rules that are stricter than the rules that Jesus had, we're on the wrong side of that thing, right? We don't, we don't want to be like that. That's like what the Pharisees did. Okay, so Jesus made wine. Jesus was apparently okay with wine. He made it knowing people was going to drink it, or people were going to drink it. He was okay with that. All right, the Bible's okay with that. The Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. But it does say be wise. It does say there are times when uh, you might have to refrain in order to keep a brother from stumbling, right? So you've got to be wise. You've got to be considerate of others. But let's be honest about what the Bible does say and what the Bible doesn't say. All right? So um, anyway, enough about that. All right? That's not the main point. But it is important. So I wanted to make that clear. Now, what about this miracle that Jesus performs is significant. We know he turns water into wine. We know we learn from Mary's example about coming to Jesus with uh, a problem that nobody else can solve and the importance of doing whatever Jesus says. But why this miracle? Why does Jesus do this? In fact, it, it, it looks at first like Jesus is not inclined to do this miracle at all. When Mary brings the problem to him, he, he doesn't say, oh, good. I've just been waiting for a chance to do something just like this, right? He, he kind of rebuffs her a little bit, kind of pushes back a little bit. But he does go ahead and do it, right? He does perform the miracle. He does turn the water into wine. What are we to make of this? Well, there are several hints in this story about the significance of this miracle that I want to draw your attention to. Now, as I do this, let me just, let me just say this, all right? Um, sometimes when I am trying to show you things in the Bible, uh, lots of other people have said the same thing, right? And I'm just kind of repeating what everybody else says. In, uh, in some of the connections I'm going to point out here, I kind of feel like I'm on an island because I couldn't really find anybody else who made a big deal out of these things. That might mean I'm way out in left field, all right? So just... Take this with a grain of salt. Examine it for yourself. But I think I can't get away from these things, though. So I, I don't think I'm out in left field. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saying these things. But I just want you to know, I, I kind of feel like I'm on an island with some of these connections. So you, you just examine them for yourself. I hope you're always doing that, examining what I say against the Scripture. But, but especially, you, you look at this and see if, if, if you think I'm, I'm over-interpreting this or not. Okay. So here's the first thing I want you to notice. John has been very clear from the beginning that he uh, is connecting his story about Jesus all the way back to the book of Genesis, right? Because the very first line of the Gospel of John is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And that's echoing the first line of Genesis, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next thing John tells us about Jesus, about the Word, is that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, which is what all of Genesis 1 is about, right? That God made the heavens and the earth, and He made the plants and the animals, and all those things, right? John's telling us Jesus is God. He was there at creation. He has no beginning. He was the one through whom God made all those things, all right? What happens then in Genesis chapter 2? 
That's where we encounter, one of the things that happens there, that's where we encounter the first wedding in the Bible. And there are not a lot of weddings in the Bible. right? For a, for a book this long, with this many stories in it, there's not a lot of weddings in the Bible. Is it a coincidence that after God creates the heavens and the earth, creates the first man, that one of the next things we're told happens is that God, from he, he encounters the first problem in the Bible, right? it was not good for a man to be alone, and then he addresses that problem, he causes the man to fall asleep, he takes a rib, fashions her into a woman, and then he brings the woman to the man, and the man says, wow, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God addresses a problem in the garden that brings a response of awe, right? And, and brings about the first wedding. John, who's connected his story to the book of Genesis, tells us Jesus is the word who was there in the beginning. And the first thing he does is he goes to a wedding where there's a problem that he solves. And the response is, wow. That's way better than I expected. I think that's a way of, a subtle way of saying one more time, Jesus is God. This, this is God come in the flesh. He's doing the same kinds of things that God has already done. Just as God established the first marriage and solved the first problem by bringing about that wedding between Adam and Eve, so now that God has come in the flesh, he encounters a problem at a wedding, which he solves, and both solutions bring forth an odd response. All right, so there's that. The connection between Genesis 2 and, and John 2. The next thing that is significant is the fact that um, he's at a wedding, and Jesus himself has come as a groom. Right? Later in John chapter 3, when John's disciples are concerned about the fact that more people are following Jesus than are following John, John the Baptist is going to say, he's the bridegroom. Now, we don't use the full phrase bridegroom anymore. We usually say groom, but that's, that's what he means. He's the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. My joy, right, is for the the groom to receive the bride. The people are the bride, and they're going to the bridegroom, so I'm happy. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, is going to talk about the same thing, that there's this connection between Christ and the church that is reflected in the relationship between a husband and a wife, and that that's been the case since the first wedding in Genesis 2. It's a mystery. But Paul says it's about Christ and the church. So for Jesus, the, the groom, to perform his first miracle at a wedding, I think is significant. Also, in verse 1, we're told that this happened on the third day. Now, every time that phrase shows up in the Bible, little bells ought to go off in our head. Because God loves to do very significant things on the third day. All the way back in the book of Exodus, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of their slavery, 
And he brought them to Mount Sinai. And he came down on the mountain and he spoke the Ten Commandments. And Israel entered into a covenant with God. Here's what the Bible says. Moses speaks to the people of Israel in Exodus 19. And he says, be ready for the third day. And what's going to happen on the third day? For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In other words, God is going to reveal himself on the third day. He's going to make himself known to you. And Jesus himself would make a connection between something that happened on the third day in the Old Testament and what would happen to him on the third day in the New Testament in Matthew twelve forty, when Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for Jesus to do this miracle and John to tell us, you know, that happened on the third day. Well, the third day from what? Well, that part I don't think is even all that important. Why did John point out that it happened on the third day? I think maybe... So we would begin to think deeply about what is happening here. In fact, the very next story that John's going to tell us in John chapter 2 is of Jesus telling the religious leaders, if you destroy this temple, because they didn't like what he was doing in the temple, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up on the third day. And they're like, it took decades to build this thing. What are you talking about? You're going to raise it up on the third day. And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. He was talking about his resurrection that was going to take place on the third day. If that's the next story, and this story says, hey, here's something else Jesus did on the third day. He went to a wedding, a celebration of union, which God instituted, and he performed a miracle there and it happened on the third day I think that's significant too also significant is what he uses to perform the miracle right so where does all this water come from well they fill these jars of water that are for the Jewish rites of purification he told us again why does John Put in that detail. Why not just tell us there were some big jars there they filled up with water? Why does he tell us that they were jars used for the Jewish rites of purification? Well, one possibility that I read was that um, this signifies, right, that the Old Testament system of purification, kind of the Old Testament law and stuff, that Jesus is now fulfilling it as he has these jars filled up and then transforms it into wine because what he's about to do is better right, than what the Old Testament law could do. That's a great possibility of what's going on here. I wonder, though, if there's something even more specific than that going on. Because When he fills up these jars of water and then turns the water into wine, in the New Testament, what does wine symbolize? Well, Jesus is about to go to his death. He has the last meal with his disciples, the Passover, and he takes that cup 
with the fruit of the vine in it. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Is it possible that Jesus is indicating that purification is now going to come through his blood, not through these old rites of purification with water? Also, I'm just trying to pile these up here because I think when you put them all together, it's, it's hard to ignore them. Also, when Jesus said to Mary in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? Well, all throughout the Gospel of John, that theme is going to come up of Jesus' hour. And it's connected to his death. For example, in John 7.30, it says, They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't arrest him yet, because it wasn't time for him to die yet. Later, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. Later in John chapter 12, when it is time for Jesus to go to the cross, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And a few verses later, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, is the answer to that question. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And in John 17, when he prays what we call his high priestly prayer, On the night that he's going to be betrayed, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So by saying, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is in a way connecting what he's about to do with his death. And if the water turned to wine symbolizes his death, his blood poured out for the cleansing of our sin, for purification... And it's significant that it happens on the third day, which points to his resurrection. And it occurred at a wedding, which by the way, when Jesus comes back, in John chapter or Revelation chapter 19, it says there's going to be something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the, the joining of Christ in the church is going to be a, a celebration, right? Like a wedding. Jesus is the groom, come for his bride, come to lay down his life for her. If all of those things are significant, then I think all of those things help us see what Jesus was saying through this miracle. He was telling us something about himself. Now, if you say, well, hold on a minute, time out, time out, time out. They couldn't have known any of those things when the miracle happened. Right? I mean, the third day would not be terribly significant to them when it happened. They didn't know at that point what Jesus meant by his hour coming. It's the first time he's talked about that. It's still quite a ways away before Jesus is going to have the Last Supper with his disciples and, and take that cup and say, this is my blood. So how can it mean that when it's not until after his resurrection that they could even begin to put those things together? Well, that's, I think, a good question. But it's a question we have an answer to. Because in the next story that we've talked about, where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up on the third day, they didn't know what he meant when he said that. His disciples were puzzled just like the religious leaders were puzzled. But here's what John says at the end of that story. 
When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There are lots of things in the Bible that we cannot fully understand until after the event that helps us make sense of them has taken place. There are lots of things that even the disciples did not get until after Jesus had risen from the dead. That didn't mean that those scriptures and those events and those miracles didn't mean those things before. It just meant they couldn't grasp them until after the fact. So I don't think it's difficult to imagine John sitting down to write the Gospel of John and thinking back on all the things he witnessed and all the things that Jesus did and seeking to relate this story. And of course, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's leading him into all truth, reminding him of of things that Jesus said and that Jesus did. For John to sit down and write this story and say, you know, that happened on the third day. That miracle about the water being turned to wine. And... I remember the water Jesus used, it wasn't in just any old thing. It was in jars that were used for purification. And he turned that into wine. And Jesus told us later about some wine that was meant to symbolize his death, his blood, his cleansing from sin. Maybe all that was significant too. And it's not just about the fact that Jesus can turn water into wine. Although, on its own, that's significant, right? Jesus is showing himself to be the master of creation. That he can turn one thing into another thing. You and I can't do that. God can do that. He can give a prophet the power to do that, like he did through Moses, to turn the the water in Egypt into blood. But Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is... God in the flesh. He demonstrates his power, but he's also showing his glory, right? Verse 11, this is where we'll tie all this up. Verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What glory was Jesus manifesting? I remember John said back in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. What did Jesus show them? John says this is one of the first places that Jesus really showed us who He was. Showed us that He was the Son of God, the only Son from the Father. He did that not only by showing us his power, right, to turn water into wine, and really good wine at that. But I think John is saying there were some other things that were significant about what Jesus did there. That we saw, even though they may not have grasped at the time. And though in one sense they already had begun to believe in him, because we saw in chapter 1, they believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was the Son of God. They believed that he was the one they'd been looking for. That when this miracle took place, there was a new sense in which his disciples believed in him. They were convinced afresh, as as it were, that this was the one. This was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. 
Jesus made quite a first impression through that miracle. Not everybody knew what he'd done, it sounds like. He, he didn't shout about it. That was never his way. But for those who knew what took place, his disciples in particular, he showed his power, but I think also pointed to the purification that would come through his death and resurrection, and even the celebration that would come as a result of his resurrection on the third day. Because what is a wedding for, and why is there wine at a wedding if not to celebrate? It happened on the third day that Jesus provided not only a symbol of coming purification, but also the wine necessary for celebration. I think that points to both what his death would accomplish and what his resurrection would bring, which is celebration and joy, especially at his return when we join with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb.